Hi, this is Nate Wuggiehout, producer of the WORT Local News. We know we're one of Madison's best podcasts, but let's make it official. Nominations for Madison Magazine's Best of Madison competition are open through the end of the month. Help nominate this show in the Best Podcast category. Just go to tinyurl.com slash votewart and cast your vote for the WORT Local News in the Podcast category. And you can nominate us every day through the end of the month. So vote early and vote often, maybe when you're listening to this show. Final voting will take place in June. Thanks in advance. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Today is the primary election for Madison Mayor, a bevy of city alders, and Wisconsin Supreme Court. Polls close at 8, so you have about two hours left to vote, and you can find your polling location at myvote.wi.gov. On your ballot, you'll find four state Supreme Court candidates. Although this is technically a nonpartisan election, two candidates identify as liberal and two as conservative. This election could help tip, could tip the balance of the court. In Madison, there are three candidates on the ballot running for mayor. The incumbent mayor, Satya Rhodes-Conway, will face off against former school board president, Gloria Reyes, and longtime city employee, Scott Kerr. Finally, there are eight alder districts across the city appearing on the ballot. Two of those races, however, had a candidate drop out of the running. Because they dropped off after registering as candidates, though, they will still appear on your ballot. Those candidates are Stephanie Salas in District 3 and Samantha Givich in District 4. Stay tuned. Later in the show, we'll hit the streets to talk with voters about their thoughts about today's election. A man fired a gunshot outside of the polling place in the village of Brooklyn today, leading the clerk to move to a location where residents could vote, reports the Associated Press. Nobody was injured in the incident, and the suspect was arrested for disorderly conduct two and a half hours after the event. There is no ongoing threat to public safety, and the sheriff's departments in both Dane and Greene counties said that there is no evidence the gunshot was related to voting activities. In more election news, voters in Wisconsin's 8th State Senate District, which covers suburbs north of Milwaukee, had a special election on their ballot today. Last year, longtime Republican State Senator Alberta Darling announced her retirement from the legislature, and now voters will have to select a new senator. There are three Republican candidates running in the primary, State Representatives Janelle Branchen of Menominee Falls and Dan Canodal of Germantown, and Thienesville Village President Van Mobley. The winner of today's primary will face Democratic candidate Jody Habish-Sinkin in the general election. If the Republican candidate wins in April, they would have a two-thirds majority in the state Senate, along with a near supermajority in the Assembly. A state Senate supermajority would give them power, give them the power to impeach and remove civil officers from state government. And of course, Wisconsin Public Radio. Meanwhile, in other non-election news, Governor Tony Evers has joined Democratic governors in 20 states to form the new Reproductive Freedom Alliance. The goal of this campaign is to protect abortion rights for the 170 million people living in these states, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Within this alliance, governors seek to share best practices, discuss executive orders, and share ideas for financing reproductive health care. 
California Governor Gavin Newsom leads this campaign, and while these governors cannot directly affect national policy, they see value in having a forum to communicate about the issue. Wisconsin Public Service Commissioner Ellen Nowak plans to leave her position after her term ends March 1st, according to the Capital Times. The PSC is an independent regulatory agency which oversees public utilities in the state. Three commissioners are appointed by the governor and serve six-year terms. Nowak was appointed by former Governor Scott Walker in 2011. She was the last remaining Walker appointee on the PSC, which means the regulatory authority will be made up of only Democrats once Governor Tony Evers appoints a replacement. Dane County's Traffic Safety Commission released updated data from its 2022 crash report. These preliminary figures indicate that traffic collisions are down, but fatalities are up. In total, there were 8,914 motor vehicle collisions in Dane County in 2022, and 20% of these collisions resulted in injuries or deaths. Almost half of the Dane County collisions that resulted in deaths were due to bad weather conditions or failure to stop at a stoplight or sign. The Traffic Safety Commission is partnering with the Wisconsin Department of Transportation's Bureau of Traffic Safety to work on initiatives to lower traffic deaths. The City of Madison is partnering with Centro Hispano to break ground on a new facility tomorrow at 3 p.m. at the corner of Cypress Place and Hughes Way. Centro Hispano is the largest nonprofit resource for the Latinx community in Dane County. They provide various bilingual and multi-generational services to around 7,000 individuals. This new building will help Centro expand its resources in the community. It will also help the city continue efforts to build more affordable housing in South Madison. The entire state of Wisconsin is expected to see at least several inches of snow starting tonight and lasting through Thursday, the National Weather Service forecasts. Heavy snows will hit west-central Wisconsin tonight and expand into central and southern Wisconsin overnight and into tomorrow. To try and beat the storm, the Madison Street Division, Streets Division is asking city residents who have their garbage pickup on Wednesdays to put their trash out this evening. And now on to today's top story. Madisonians did their civic duty and cast ballots at polling locations across the city today. WRT reporter Jessica Lindahl and producer Nate Wuggiehout hit the streets to talk with voters about the primary election. The polls opened at 7 a.m. for today's primary election, where Madison voters will get to decide who goes to the April ballot for races for Madison mayor, a bevy of city elders, and state Supreme Court. According to the Madison Clerk's Office, as of 11 a.m. this morning, nearly 20,000 ballots had been counted, over 7,000 of which had been absentee ballots. That comes out to a voter turnout of 10% of pre-registered voters. We traveled around the city to talk with voters about why they were heading to the polls. I started off by heading to the UW-Madison campus to talk with students about their experience at the polls. I'm Jessica and I'm here at Union South asking voters about their experience today. My name is Katie Peters. And how was your voting experience today? It went really great. Why did you come out to vote today? I came out to vote today because um, reproductive rights are on the line and I think it's a super important issue and I also think it's really important to just exercise your civic rights no matter who you're voting for. Uh, My name is Sky Roventini and I came out to vote today because my teacher told me to. I'm voting because um, I think in April the 
I don't know, there's going to be a decision made about abortion, and I just want to vote to ensure that we get a representative who um, aligns with my views on it. Yeah, my name is Timo Roberts. I came out to vote because, um, I don't know, I just saw some things from friends saying that we should look into voting this, this election, and so I did. And I decided, yeah, it's probably worth going. I was already in the building, so I just went upstairs. Yeah, pretty easy. Yeah, um, I'm Anna Grace Bricker. Um, I came out to vote. One of my roommates is actually an intern with Badger's Vote, and so she's working the polls today. So she told us all to come out and vote. So I was Googling the candidates as I was filling out my ballot, but I supported the political process. My name's Margaret. Um, I'm a senior at UW-Madison, and um, I had a really good experience voting. I come here for every election. It was super easy. There's never very many people at Union South, so I was able to get through really quickly. Um, I kind of used the internet to make sure I was like updated on who I needed to vote for to kind of, I don't know, steer the city in the right direction. So, um, yeah, generally a good experience. This is Jessica reporting from Gordon's Dining Center asking people about their experience at the polls today. Hi, my name is Maddie. Um, uh, my voting experience has always been awesome in Madison, um, and I came to vote today for abortion rights. This is Jessica reporting from the Nick Recreation Center. Uh, my name is Allison. Uh, I voted because I think it's important to exercise my civic duty, and I like having my say in who I elect. Uh, I my voting experience here was very easy. I think it took about like in total like two minutes. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. Go vote if you haven't. Meanwhile, I traveled to Madison's south and west sides today to talk with voters and even folks working the polls. Here with WORT News, I'm at the Goodman Park here on the sort of south side of Madison here, ready to talk with some voters, see why they're here, and uh, why they think that this election is important. Uh, what's your name? Ellen. Ellen, and why are you out here today? Because I like to participate in the ability for women to vote, and I think we've all worked hard to be more equal citizens. And and why, why are you voting in this election? Is, uh, do you see this one as important? I sure do. I was a participant this last Friday in the Majestic Theaters um, program, a nonprofit. They donated their space and time to other nonprofits here in our community to bring um, us as a community more together. And just anything else you'd like to add? I love WRT and all they do. They are a very important part of getting the news and opinions out to our community so that we can grow and change with the times that we are experiencing. Thank you very much, everyone. I'm now here at the village on Park Street. It's currently 27 degrees, partly cloudy, pretty nice day out. And yeah, let's see what the voters here have to say about the election. And uh, what's your name? Uh, my name's Justin. And what are you doing here? I am voting in the... Uh I don't know, winter primary. And uh, why are you voting in this uh, primary election here today? I think my major driver um, was to ensure that there is at least one progressive in the, um, for the Supreme Court justice um, in, the, uh, in the ballot coming up. Any, anything else you want people to know? Go vote.
What's your name? Elaine Staley. Uh, and uh, Elaine, you are chief inspector here at this site. What have you What have you seen so far today? Uh, we've seen a small turner turnout, but I think it's a little larger than it's been in past primaries, and we're really encouraged by that. And uh, we're also very happy now to have two wards because we have the town of Madison being merged into Madison. Just anything else you want people to uh, people to know? Come and vote. <laughs> I'm now here at Meadow Ridge Library. It's uh, just about 28 degrees here. Sun is still shining. Still a pretty nice day out here. Let's see what the voters in here have to say uh, about the election. Uh, what's your name? Lee Gregg. Uh, and uh, why are you out here today? I'm voting. <laughs> and why are you voting? I always vote. Yeah, I want my vote counted. Just anything that you want people to know about uh, voting here today? Uh, I think it's really important that they do vote. You know, even people who disagree with me should be able, able to vote. My name, my full name? Uh, first name, oh, up to you. Susan. And uh, Susan, what are, you, what are you doing out here today? I'm here to vote because it's important to vote in primaries as well as the uh, final election. And uh, why why are you voting in this election here today? I have seen lots of media about the judge that I voted for and I like the things that that person has to say and I think it's important to secure the rights for everybody. Just anything else that you'd like to add for people to know? Well, it's a beautiful day. It's a good day to come out and vote, and it was so slick. I was in and out in under four minutes, so it's worth it. If you haven't made your way to the ballot box yet, don't worry, you still have time. The polls are open until 8 p.m. this evening. As long as you're in line by 8 p.m., stay in line and you can vote. All voters will need some form of photo ID. If you need to register, you can do that at your polling place, but be sure to bring an acceptable proof of residence. To find out where you vote and other things you might need to know, go to myvote.wi.gov. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. And I'm Jessica Lindahl. The Wisconsin Supreme Court issued a ruling last week about what's known as the dark store loophole. The home supply chain Lowe's was trying to get a lower tax assessment from the city of Delavan, but a unanimous decision by the high court's justices disagreed with the company's argument. But Lowe's isn't the only big box store trying to get a tax break. WORT reporter Abigail Levin speaks to Jerry DeShane, executive, executive director of the League of Wisconsin Municipalities, about this decision and how the dark store loophole works. The Wisconsin State Supreme Court issued a decision last week regarding dark store loopholes. I'm joined on the line by Jerry DeShane, the executive director for the League of Wisconsin Municipalities, to talk about the dark store loophole and what the Supreme Court decision means for Wisconsin taxpayers. Jerry, thanks for joining me. Very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Abigail. Absolutely. Well, the first question I have for you is pretty simple. What was the Supreme Court decision last week about these dark store loopholes? I would characterize it in a non-legal sense this way. The Supreme Court basically closed the loophole. They, they said the dark store theory is not consistent with 
standard appraisal practices for real estate appraisal. There apparently has been previous Wisconsin Supreme Court decisions about this. And I'm wondering, how is this one different than those past Supreme Court decisions? There was a Supreme Court decision in a, a, a chain drugstore case called, it was a Walgreens decision. And it raised a lot of questions about whether or not the current system of appraising large format commercial property was accurate. And that sort of fed the dark store frenzy. This decision, on the other hand, narrowed that Walgreens exception dramatically. And it also said something very important, which is basically if a municipal appraiser followed the Wisconsin appraisal manual, which is put out by the state government, if they followed that manual, then their appraisal is deemed correct. And what that means, in essence, is the property owner, the burden is on the property owner to prove that it's incorrect. And in the case that was decided last week, the court said no, they, they did not at all meet that burden of proof. I want to talk with you a little bit more about what this might mean for future issues with this loophole. But some people listening to this might not know what a dark store loophole is. Could you explain a little bit about what companies might be arguing in this loophole and how it works? It's a legal theory that sort of swept the country. And it was used extensively, especially by big box retailers. And what they were arguing, in essence, was that their facility was so big and so unusual that it was basically a white elephant. That, you know, never mind that it cost $10 million to buy the land and build that building, it couldn't possibly be worth that much money because it was just too unique. That you would have to compare it for value purposes, for tax purposes, to an abandoned dark store not just a vacant store, but a dark store. And a dark store is different from a vacant store in that a dark store is generally in a location where it's just not economically viable for retail, at least not to the same scale. And that's what the Wisconsin court struck down. And could you tell me a little bit about what this court decision might mean for taxpayers? Because I know a lot of taxpayers have been arguing that these dark store loopholes are making them have to pay more taxes and increasing property taxes. Could you tell us about what the Supreme Court decision might mean for the future? This Supreme Court decision is a win for the overwhelming majority of property taxpayers. The way property taxes work in Wisconsin is that the burden is shared among all types of property based on how much your property is worth. Well, if you as a big box retailer could get your property tax bill cut in half, that tax burden doesn't go away. It's distributed to homeowners and other taxpayers. So by closing the dark store loophole, there's going to be less shifting of the tax burden from big box retailers to homeowners who pay most of the property taxes, but also to other small businesses and even manufacturers. I'm wondering if there is anything else you would like to share with us about this issue that I haven't asked you about. Only that, you know, this decision does not prevent people from challenging their property assessment, their tax assessment. Assessors still have to do, they have to do it right, they have to follow the law, they have to follow the manual, but this basically makes it, it reaffirms the manual. It reaffirms the right and wrong, and hopefully will save local governments a fair amount of money in lawsuits 
that are frankly unnecessary. And one last question with regards to that. Do you think that this decision will prevent bigger businesses or detract them from actually making these tax assessment challenges? We think it's going to inhibit them, yes. Um, if, if a you know If a big box store was assessed wrongly, no differently than your home if it was assessed wrongly, you have a right to challenge that. They have a right to challenge that. But what the court has done here is taken away this big box or this dark store argument that we felt all along was just not consistent with the law. And we hope that the result will be fewer challenges from large commercial property. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining me here, Jerry, and for all your answers and clarifying this issue. Well, Abigail, thank you very much for your interest. I've been speaking with Jerry DeShane about the recent Wisconsin Supreme Court decision about dark store loopholes. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. Earlier this month, a devastating earthquake hit the nations of Turkey and Syria, leaving only rubble in its wake. On this week's Cardinal Call, producer Madeline Afonso spoke with campus reporter Liam Barron about a group of Turkish students at UW-Madison who organized fundraisers and donation drives to support the survivors. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso, joined today by news writer Liam Barron to talk about student fundraising efforts to help victims of the earthquake in Turkey. Can you explain what your story is about and why you wanted to write about it? Yeah, so um, in the wake of the earthquakes that hit Turkey and Syria, I had heard about a group of students who were organizing a um, fundraising and donations in kind drive. Uh, so these donations in kind would go to the uh, consulate general, uh, their Turkish consulate general in Chicago, um, and the monetary funds would be going directly towards humanitarian efforts. Um, and so Matter and I uh, ended up sort of like showcasing and uh, writing about and interviewing these students who had organized this um, drive. And we also interviewed a faculty member who was also pretty crucial in organizing and helping sort of make sure that the drive went through. What was it like talking to the Madison Association of Turkish Students and those who put this together, who were obviously very passionate and affected by this? It was really, really inspiring. Um, I mean, I think I came into the interview like definitely ready for, you know, broaching some really heavy topics. And we definitely did that. But I mean, I was really struck by the sort of like, I guess, grace and honesty um, in which they answered my questions and which they talked about, um, you know, the feelings that they were navigating during these times and, you know, like how they're processing that. Because I mean, in addition to, you know, organizing these fundraising drives, organizing these donation drives, there are still students um, and I didn't get a chance to speak to the doctoral students who comprise much of Madison Association of Turkish Students' uh, membership, but um, I had heard that they're also you know, facing a pretty substantial time crunch. How do you think these students are making an impact on the broader Madison community's efforts to help abroad in Turkey? I mean, I think just at a base level, you know, people being willing to take time out of their own day, their very busy schedules to find a way to help people you know that 
that's completely out of their own volition. And I think it is something really, really inspirational to see that even, you know, we're undergrads, we're not like, we're adults, but we're not full-blown adults yet. Um, and it is really, really inspirational to see that like, people are willing to, you know, strike out there and make a difference. And I think that is something that shows that, yeah, no matter who you are, you can find a way to contribute, uh, whether it be, you know, these earthquakes or whatever happens that needs someone, you know, providing support. How much to your knowledge right now have they donated and fundraised? Yeah, so um, at the time of the article's publication, it was around 4,000 uh, items in kind. And then I believe it was about $11,000 uh, fundraised so far. I know the students had also mentioned that they were looking at um, trying to get some price matching going uh, from Turkish alumni of UW-Madison, and I think some Turkish business leaders. How did program manager of UW's Turkish studies program, Dr. Dennis Balgamis, describe her hopes for getting through this tragedy? She really, you know, focused on a community-based mindset. And so she had said, uh, you know, I think that we all need to be supporting each other right now and we need to be hugging and talking about what we're feeling. Um, but it was definitely a sort of community effort that she was describing the most, the idea that everyone needs to come together and pitch in what they can to try and help out. How did the students share this experience was taking a toll on them? They definitely talked about how, you know, it is a really substantial time commitment, but the other thing that they were talking about, and the student Laura had mentioned it in particular, uh, she had said that, you know, there's really no way to escape um, the news. And so when you have personal ties to Turkey, that's something that's really hard to, you know, go through the fact that you go to the union, you go on TikTok, you go on YouTube, and it's always news about what could be happening to people that you know, what could be happening to your friends. Um, and so that is, you know, the saturation of news definitely makes it a really hard tragedy to, you know, be isolated from. What did the students describe was a positive outcome of this tragedy? So they had said that one, you know, positive thing that did come out of this was the fact that the national Turkish community definitely became a lot closer. And they'd also described that from what they'd heard back home, people are also pretty close or becoming closer because of the tragedies. You know, everyone, I guess, has to pitch in. Uh, and so it does create a sort of community in the sense that like, there's an exigence to it. Everyone is forced together in this one moment. What did you find most inspiring or moving while reporting this story? Oh, that's tough. I think, honestly, it was their tenacity. I think the fact that they're, you know, able to speak about this experience and this tragedy so candidly, um, and the fact that those students were willing to put aside their own time and really, like, really put themselves out there and, you know, try and do this seemingly, you know, insurmountable task of trying to help. Uh, I think that was something that was really, really inspiring to hear and the fact that despite, you know, these time commitments, despite the fact that they may be missing class or missing assignments, um, it is still something that they really felt was worth pursuing. Is there anything else you'd like to share or think readers should know about this? I think uh, if there's any way you can help out, I definitely think that that's a worthwhile venture. Um, and whether that's donations, um, items, money, uh, or, you know, if you can dedicate some time or they had also mentioned uh, online service where you can look at maps and sort of try and figure out routes that might be best for uh, responders to help in the rescue efforts. 
Liam, thank you so much for talking about this. Yeah, thank you so much, Madeline. In other campus news, former UW-Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank died Friday evening at age 67. Blank passed away after a seven-month battle with cancer. She served as chancellor from 2013 until 2022 and resigned in order to accept a position as president of Northwestern University. Messages from across the University of Wisconsin system poured in Saturday afternoon, expressing their admiration of the leader and the legacy she left. Among the highlights of Blank's tenure was the formation of the Bucky Tuition Promise and the Always Forward campaign, which raised more than $4 billion to support university initiatives. history project to become the Rebecca M. Blank Center for Campus History. After a successful sifting and reckoning exhibit at the Chazen Museum of Art, staff will continue work in a new center named after the former chancellor. The initiative allows the work of the public history project to continue and influence other areas of the university, namely administrative decisions and campus curricula. Data science, computer science majors show biggest increase in student enrollment. The UW-Madison released a list of the majors that added the most students between the fall semesters of 2018 and 2022. Topping the list was data science, which added 914 students since the major's inception in 2018, followed by computer science with 642. These majors correlate to professional fields experiencing high levels of growth as data scientists, computer programmers, cybersecurity analysts are predicted to be among the fastest growing fields of this decade. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Teeth are among the most important features in any outdoor critter's defensive arsenal. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg plays Tooth Fairy for one of the Wildlife Rehab Center's most recent guests, an opossum. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to talk all about teeth. And I want to talk about teeth because we have an opossum in care that has a lot of teeth, and I don't know if I've really talked about teeth in the past. I think teeth are pretty fascinating, and every animal has different types of teeth and different numbers of teeth. So, would you know that Virginia opossums have the most teeth of any terrestrial North American mammal? I think that's incredible that they actually have 50 teeth in their mouth 
except they're not really that much bigger than dogs or cats. So they have different types of teeth and they actually go through two full sets of teeth during their lifetime. So just like people, um, you know, you get our first set of teeth and we call them milk teeth, right? And, uh, you know, you think about losing a tooth or something, but for possums, they're reabsorbed into the jaw in the first couple of months of their life. And then they get their adult teeth where they have them fully developed about the age of six months old. Now, possums might only live about two years in the wild, Um, which is pretty short lifespan, if you think of it. They have a different type of breeding strategy where they have lots of babies, but much shorter lifespan. So very opposite of humans, where we have a longer lifespan, but it takes a long time for us to develop. Possums have uh, all of these teeth for a number of reasons, mostly for what they eat and also for protection so that they can show their sharp teeth to you and you can be scared of them because they use it as a defense mechanism if you're trying to approach an opossum. So of those 50 beautiful teeth that they have, 18 of them are incisors. And those are the ones that are at the front of the mouth. Those are really small and they're really kind of tiny, sharp little teeth. And they're used mostly for being able to pull at food that they're eating, uh, leaves, insects, etc. They eat a lot of different types of foods. But they're going to use their canines, which are kind of those bigger, impressive teeth that are on the sides, the top and the bottom. So two canines on the top and two on the bottom on each side of the mouth. And that's going to help with a lot of the carrion that they eat. So they are definitely opportunistic types of feeders eating maybe you know, scavenger, like they're scavenging on food. So if something is dead on the side of the road, they might try to eat it. You've probably also seen possums hunt for things in your garbage. Always good to keep your garbage cans locked, by the way, just because. But they have a very varied diet. So whether it's carrion or insects or other small animals, they're definitely eating those. But they're considered omnivorous. And so there is definitely going to be vegetation in there that they have to rip through, which would be their uh, molars and premolars. Those actually really help. And so they actually have uh, 12 premolars six on the top and six on the bottom on each side of the mouth. And that is uh, big for chewing. And so they'll chew their food. And then the molars, uh, 16 of them, eight on top and eight on the bottom, the tricuspids. So they have little cusps or like the flat areas of the tooth. And that helps to interlock with each other and uh, again, is able to cut that food up and is able to grind it so that they're able to chew their food effectively before they swallow. So although possums happen to have uh, some of the most fearsome teeth and the most number of teeth above of our mammals here in North America, they usually aren't in conflict with a lot of different other species. Like I'd say as a wildlife rehabilitator at our center, the most common conflict we see is between possums and dogs. But as I think people have heard, possums like to play dead. And so I think you get the overzealous pup or the dog who really wants to try to, you know, predate on something that's moving or play with it like a toy. And possums will either be the freeze or flee type where they just usually avoid conflict, stay still, show off those shiny teeth and say, I'm dangerous and hope that the dog leaves them alone. But they are definitely predated upon uh, by other species, not just dogs or cats in the neighborhood. Kind of depends on the size of the possum, whether it's a baby or an adult. But they do have natural predators out there. Could be anywhere from raptors to you know your fox or coyote to your your pet but they don't typically try to bite back unless they feel like they are absolutely threatened and they will use those sharp teeth for sure and it can be more dangerous and it can cause complications to your pet if you get into an interaction so you should always talk to your veterinarian if you've ever had a wildlife bite interaction with your dog or your cat and hopefully you don't have any repercussions like infections that could be caused from you know the teeth and the bite and the wounds that could come from that i don't think it happens super often but it is something 
to be aware of and you should always just monitor your pet in the backyard or you know try to avoid putting them outside at certain times of the day especially uh, at nighttime when possums might be out and about because they are nocturnal one other thing that i want to talk about really quickly uh, in terms of teeth is that we do suggest that an animal's teeth condition uh, should be the best possible if we can in rehabilitation knowing that possums have such a short lifespan and since they have a lot of tooth problems and complications when they come in sometimes due to the injuries like if they're hit by a car and they have a skull or a jaw fracture but also just because we know that gum disease serious gum disease periodontal disease that can actually lead to poor health so considering that possums are eating lots of garbage and carrion and other dead stuff you know they can get inflammation in their gums that can cause liver or kidney disease if there's oral inflammation into the mouth that gets into the bloodstream and so what we do is we have vets on staff that help us with anesthesia and with dentals believe it or not so most of our possums if they've had some sort of mouth or head injury are going to go through a cleaning and polishing to get rid of our lots of tartar from the teeth and the plaque just like we would if we were to go to the dentist and I think that's kind of a really neat thing that we're able to offer because if you're able to clean up the mouth of an opossum after let's say two years of being in the wild and then becoming injured we're hoping we give them a little bit longer of a lifespan out there knowing that they're not going to suffer from an oral disease that can cause them to become septic and and die from organ failure so those teeth are important for their food for defense and also if they're clean then it gives them a longer lifespan how cool is that so Today's segment has been all about teeth and Virginia opossums having the most teeth of our North American mammals and what we do to try to keep them healthy if we can and care. Uh, so thanks for listening today here on our Wildlife Weekly segment of WORT. If you have any questions about wildlife, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In the 1970s, a sculpture by artist Thomas Ball entitled Emancipation Group was first exhibited at the Chazen Museum of Art, where it has been remained for public viewing ever since. Now a new exhibition titled Re-Emancipation takes a closer and more nuanced look at that sculpture and confronts how it reflects a larger story of racial hierarchy in America. Amy Gilman, director of The Chasen, joined WRT earlier on the 8 o'clock buzz with Breon Somerville and Tara Wilhelmy. How should we grapple with problematic art? So that's the question the Chasen Museum set out to answer two years ago as um, they sought to reimagine one problematic sculpture housed at The Chasen. Uh, so the sculpture itself is by artist Thomas Ball and has been housed at the Chazen since 1976. It depicts Abraham Lincoln standing over a kneeling freed man, but rather than stash it away, the Chazen has kept it on display, partnering with the artist Stanford Biggers to reimagine, illuminate, and understand this and other historical works in the Chazen collection. It's called the Remancipation. Joining us on the line is Amy Gilman, again, as she stated, director of Chazen Museum, just a few blocks away from War Studios. Wow. So just on what we just talked about, what is something <laughs> that you could add to that space? Well, um, this object is actually really famous, not just our piece, but there are objects like this that are in a lot of museum collections. You mentioned the one in D.C. The one in D.C. is actually still on view, but one in Boston, uh, which had been on view, was taken off at the end, uh, off view at the end of 2020. And 
we just felt like we couldn't just leave it in the gallery the way that it was. This is an object that really needs to be um, understood a little bit more. But also, hey, we're art museum. We're about objects, right? But we also want to have big conversations about really important things that are um, that are going on in our country and our community. And this seemed like a really great way to talk about race and racial hierarchy in this country grounded in an object. Right? So the whole exhibition really t- helps you to understand why this object was created, what are all the different elements in the object and what do they mean? Like, why are they there? And then we invited in these incredible artists, Sanford Biggers, uh, Mark Hines, this group called Mask Consortium, to come in and do dance in response to it. To uh, We brought in uh, Pharaoh Monch to do uh, uh, lyrics in response to this object. Uh, Keon Harold, jazz uh, musician, to confront the object. And we've been filming all of this. Mm. And now we want to bring it all to you. And it's here at the Chazen and open to the public until the end of June. For sure, for sure. So like, what are some of like the, uh, we'll say, takeaways that you want people to basically leave after they come and they witness, they experience this? Like, What are some of the takeaways that you want people to leave from this space with? One of the things that I really hope that you can come away with is that we can not just argue about difficult things in this country, which seems to be what we're doing now, right? We're in a pretty divisive moment. Um, But we can actually dialogue about them if we can look and observe and um, think about something slightly outside of our own experience, we can talk about systemic racism. We can talk about how these objects ended up around the country, and we can talk about what they mean not only historically, but today. And and then we can respond to that. What does it mean to be emancipated now? And we have invited all these artists to come in and do this in their own media, but we also invite the audience to do that. And that's one of the things that I hope that everybody will take away with them so working with Sanford Biggers and like the other artists I believe you mentioned his name was Mark is that correct Mark Hines sure Mark Hines so like how were they what was like the selection process of working with these artists and how was it so I have actually known Sanford Biggers for um for a number of years and back in the summer of 2019 we did a uh an exhibition of Sanford's work here at the museum. It was a smaller exhibition and we invited Sanford, um, actually Candy Waterloo, who's the head of our education and programming area, invited Sanford and, and Mark Hines to come and do a performance at the close of that exhibition. And so that was their first time coming to Madison. And prior to that performance, we had a dinner for them. And there was this group of people around the table at dinner and Sanford said, what are some of the things that you're working on? And we started talking about this work that was in our collection. And Sanford and Mark got really interested in it. And that was the first conversation we thought, well, maybe we'll do a response piece. We'll invite Sanford to come and do a response piece. And that was in fall 2019. And then sort of it got dropped a little bit. We're all busy. And then COVID hit, COVID. right? And, you know, and, and then, you know, and then there's this continuing reckoning of Confederate monuments and the summer of the BLM movement and all of these things were happening. And 
in November 2020, Boston decided to take their public version down. And Sanford called me and said, I think we need to revisit this project. Would you be interested? And that was really the beginning. What was uh, what is like Sanford's background as far as like in historical monuments and black history in general and just American history? Sure. So Sanford, Sanford has been doing work all over the country internationally. He's a black artist and he is works both in sculpture, but also in music and performance. And he attended Morehouse. He's very, he really understands both the history of museums and how artists can work within those, but also then the critique of them. So he really enjoys bringing together, and often he does, things that are sort of traditional Western classical, quote, museum, white marble statues like the one that we have, along with sort of wedded together with objects from Africa and other cultures. And that was one of the things that he was interested in doing here was exploring our collection. So thank you so much for sharing, Amy. I don't think that I've been to the Chazen enough. Can you share with our listeners how they can come and interact with this exhibit, what hours, is there a fee, uh, and where you're located at exactly? I'm happy to do that. So we are located basically right at the corner of University and uh, Lake. Lake is our closest intersection. Um, You pass us, if you take the bus down University, you pass us every day. And uh, we are open seven days a week. Monday through Friday, we're open 10 a.m. until 7 p.m. And Saturdays and Sundays, we're open from 12 till 5. And we are free and open to the public. You can come see the Romancipation Project until June 25th and uh, maybe spend a little bit of time in the rest of the galleries. Thank you so much. You all heard that. Lots of things to go check out. This sounds like a really brave and inspirate conversation in sparking uh, exhibit. And I really appreciate your approach, especially when so many places are just removing the art, right? The questionable art. And so I appreciate like kind of where you started that you saw this as a larger opportunity to open up a much needed dialogue. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for your leadership at the Chazen. I hope that folks get out and get a chance to experience this uh, between now and the end of June. Thanks so much. We really appreciate you having me on. For Thanks. sure. Take care. Thank you, Amy. All right. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter was Jessica Lindell. Your headline writer and interviewer was Abigail Levins. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal, and Breon Somerville and Tara Wilhelmy with the 8 o'clock buzz. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wuggy Hout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast and subscribe via major podcast directories. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. You have one more hour to vote. And up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Padio. Good night. <laughs>